Thanks, Alison. Why don't we pray together as we come into this part of God's Word. Lord God, you know where our hearts and minds are at right now. You know the things that are swirling around our worlds, the things causing us to stumble or to be happy. We ask that as we we come to your word now, as we reflect over what you are saying to us, that by your spirit, you would give us a picture of what is to come that captivates us. So we might have the strength now to understand you and to live for you. Help us, we pray, by your spirit to understand your word today. Amen. Well, being away on holidays has made me kind of reflect on one question. How much is enough? Like, how much time away with kids and family can one take? That's a real question that you've got to ask when you're away for four weeks and you're driving over 3,000 Ks together as a family. And there are definite moments where I'm like, I've had enough. (laughs) I said that to my children. It wasn't really (laughs) the best thing to say at some points, but it was really a great time of, of being away together. But I think I only took two days before I'm like, yep, I'm ready again. Two days back from holidays. I'm kind of like, all right, I feel like I need a break again. There's something stitched into all of us that we want more. The question I want us to think about is, what is enough? What is enough for us? See, all of us, we're after something. We're after more peace or happiness or experiences. We're after more finance or friends and and family. We're, We're consistently chasing something. Do you find that? We're never totally satisfied. We, we think that there'll be something that will give us enough, that will give us satisfaction, but we, we keep chasing after it and going after more. And what I've noticed in myself, and probably you may have noticed it too, is that in each and every one of us, we have stitched into the fabric of who we are, a desire for more. We always want more. Every single one of us wants more. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, it's not me, Rowan. I want less. You know what? I want less. I want a declutter, downsize, retreat. I'm sick of all the stuff in my life. I want less. But here's what you want. You want more of less. (laughs) You actually want something different. You desire something. What you have is not enough. You want less. And so it's the same root cause underneath it all. You're still longing for something you don't have And as we look at humanity and the world around us, we see that really no one's satisfied. No one is truly satisfied. We've all felt the ache of someone who doesn't love us like we love them. Or maybe the the sting of sickness separating us from those that we love. Or mental health robbing us of rationality in relationship with people around us or even within ourselves. Maybe it's the cruel and perverted nature of the evil of humanity. What we have as we look around this world that we are in does not seem enough, does it? The world seems to promise a lot. It says, come and drink from the well of wealth and from joy and from this and from that. And the world around us promises all these good things. But it never satisfies. It never delivers now it's got highlights, don't, don't get me wrong. And if anything like me, the highlights are great. The joys of, of, of holidays, the joys of rest, the joys of family, there's so much to celebrate, but I never feel enough. They're never good enough or long enough or rich enough. 
If we're honest and we stand back and look at the world around us, we have to acknowledge, I think, that there's something broken about the world we're in. Something that's not right. Where each one of us has this desire for more, but we, we never really experience it. Why is there this dissonance? Why are we built this way? I mean, if there is a God and He's in control and He's good, who would create us with this desire for more stitched in, but then not deliver? And I hear that question often. I hear people come along and ask, why is the world the way it is? And you're hearing a desire for more. And that question pushes many people away from God. Because if there is a God and He's made us this way and He's not delivered the things that we thirst for, then what sort of God and Creator is He? I want nothing to do with Him. And so people walk away from God. People say, oh, I, don't, I don't want anything to do with that God. I want to chase my own dreams. But do you notice where you end up? You notice where you end up if you walk away from the God who made us? You end up searching for satisfaction, trying thing after thing after thing until every single one of us comes to the same end. Death. Running away from God doesn't solve your problem. It puts you back in the same solution, looking in the same situation, looking for a solution. But I want to put it to you today as we come to the end of this book of Isaiah, that the solution to the brokenness of this world, the never-ending search for enough, is not found by running away from our Creator, but running to Him. I want to put it to you that the desire for more that is stitched into each and every one of us was put there on purpose for a reason. And that reason is that you and I might feel dissatisfied. When you feel like you want more, that's exactly how God wants you to be. Our problem isn't that we desire too much. Our problem, as we see the picture painted for us at the end of the book of Isaiah, is that we settle for too little. The great writer C.S. Lewis once wrote these words, they're on the screen. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he couldn't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. The story of the people of Israel that the book of Isaiah has been speaking to was a story of a people who consistently settled for less than what God was offering. They, can, they settled for less than the plans and promises that God had offered to them. Even from the very beginning of God's people, from the day in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve said to God, what you've given us is not enough. Your plans and purposes for life now are not enough. We want to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We want to become like God, determining what is right and wrong. And so they stepped out on their own to get what they thought was enough. And what they'd been given was something far greater. And that is the story of humanity from that point forward, isn't it? Like Israel in the desert. They reject God's words. They don't trust Him to enter into the promised land. They, they try and seek fulfillment of His plans and purposes on their own. They grumble, they complain, they doubt the goodness of God. They do not follow His plans. And so don't experience the goodness of God. And it's the same problem with us too, isn't it? We think we know what we need. And we think we know it better than the one who made us. The problem 
Friends, with our desire for more, for satisfaction, with what is enough, the problem isn't God, but those who reject God's perfect plans and promises. People who think we know better than God, who think we know what is enough. It's to those people, to Israel and people like us, that God speaks in Isaiah 65 verse 2. Have a look with me. I spread out my hands all day long to rebellious people who walk in the path that is not good, following their own thoughts. God's clear as he speaks to this nation, as he speaks through Isaiah the prophet of what they're like. God has been standing there like a dad, holding out his arms, saying, come back. But Israel, like us, just keeps saying no. (laughs) See, the problem with Israel and the problem with you and me is that, well, we're so short-sighted. When we want satisfaction, when we want fulfillment, we want it here and now. I want to experience it right in this moment. And in doing that, Israel and us miss the grandeur of the goodness of the plan of God. When I was a kid, um, I loved to lick the bowl of whatever cake mum was making. I don't know if that was you as well. Mum used to make cakes in the kitchen and have that little mix master thing, and she'd mix it all in. There'd be the cake mix on the bench. Sometimes I'd do it with permission, sometimes not. But I'd go in and kind of lick the bowl and try the cake mixture. I loved it. It's just so sweet and gooey and sticky. Like the cake mixture is amazing. And sometimes I'd just be so tempted to get a spoon while mum's not there and scoop out the cake mixture and kind of eat it before it went into the oven and was baked. But here's the thing. If I actually knew what the cake mixture was, which I did, I knew there was something better coming called a cake. It would be put into the oven and it would rise and come out. And I loved cake. Like, who doesn't love cake, really? Cake is great. But the problem was when I was there as that kid with these big eyes and saw the cake mixture in the kitchen, I didn't care about the oven and the rising and the cake. I just wanted the sweet, gooey goodness here and now. But I knew cake was better. I knew cake was coming for my good. But so often I gave in for the cake mixture. God's plan for humanity is good. It's a plan that lasts forever. And it makes the now feel like a blink of an eyelid when we're going to see it in its full fullness. And what God does through Isaiah, what he shows them and us here at the end of this book, is a picture of the future of the universe. Looking beyond death, showing us that this is not the end. He shows us the cake. And says, don't get caught up in the cake mixture. He shows us that this is not the end. So we walk away from the book of Isaiah. There's one thing that I love to be in our minds. There's lots, but there's one. This that we experience right now is not the end. There is more to come. There is life beyond death. Death is not your end. Please hear that. In Isaiah 61, Isaiah spoke these words from God. Listen to the promise. The spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. 
They will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. Isaiah spoke of a day that these broken people were waiting for. A day we too are waiting for the fullness to come for. A day of satisfaction when we would have enough. And now in these last two chapters, God lifts our horizons from the here and now to show us this amazing promise. Point number two, an amazing promise. Look at Isaiah 65 verse 17. For I will create a new heaven and a new earth, a new sky and a new land. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. Friends, that is the cake. (laughs) What is on view here is a picture of the future, life beyond death that does not end. It's what every person on the face of the planet is really after. It's what we really desire. It's true satisfaction. It will quench that thirst for more, for enough. The sound of weeping extinguished, delight and joy filling the earth, life lasting forever. How great a picture that is of what is to come. We need to understand how big this promise is. He's saying that the world as we know it, this earth, it is not the destination. This is a temporary place, a temporary dwelling place. Now we still need to care for it and look after it. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. But this is temporary. There is something more to come, something we were built for, that we yearn for, that we long for, that is, that is coming, that is so satisfying. A new heaven and a new earth. The world as it was properly meant to be without the effects of our brokenness. These last two chapters of Isaiah kind of stamp like a watermark across our vision, our sight. They put a watermark across everything we see and hear and feel and touch and experience in this world. Draft. Boom. Have you ever got a draft document? And it's come through to you and it's got all the writing there of what the contract says or whatever. But stamped in the background is this little picture that says draft. This is not it. There is more to come. This is not the final. Isaiah 65 and 66 say this. The world as you and I see it has a big fat draft stamped across it. There is more to come. There is more to come. It is better. It is greater. It will last forever. This is but a blink of an eyelid. Don't give it all up for the here and now. Look at what is coming. A new heaven and a new earth. No more weeping, no more mourning, no more crying. Joy and delight. Now there's continuity between the old and the new. There's there's continuity between it. We we will be there and, and there'll be animals and people and it's not like some ethereal kind of crazy, fluffy, in the sky, angely, cloudy thing, whatever that is. It's a picture of a real physical earth, but it's so much better. Look at the way Isaiah describes it in picture language. There's a few bits here, and try and picture it. It's like this, 65 verse 20. In her, in Jerusalem, in the new Jerusalem, the new earth, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days or an old man not live out his days. 
Indeed, the one who dies at 100 years old will be mourned as a young man, and the one who misses 100 years will be considered cursed. Now, he's not saying there'll be death in the new creation. The Bible's been clear throughout that. There is no death in the new creation. But, but, he's, but he's using a picture of, we hate it when an infant is robbed from life. And when someone's 100, we go, they had a good innings. He's, like, he's saying that eternity will be like 100. That guy's like a second old. This is going to last forever. Like, people won't be going, oh, this is robbed from me. No more sickness, no more death, no more pain. Life, it does not end. That's the picture. Look at verse 21. People will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat it. It's speaking to a world where you build a house and someone comes in and invades and takes over you. You plant a vineyard so you might reap the return, but you don't get to because someone comes and pushes you out. And we experience that today in a way, don't we? You know, the frustrations of life. You put all this energy and effort into something and someone else comes along and takes the credit or reaps the reward. And you're like, what? Why does that happen? You work for your boss, but they get the profits. You come up with an idea, but then they get to patent it and it gets all returned to them. You, you teach your children, but they forget it all and they make some stupid mistake. And you're like, why do I bother? Have you ever, have you ever said that? I never have. That won't happen anymore. The futility of life as we know it is passing away. The new creation brings lasting satisfaction. The work we do, and we will do work, will be good and joyful and bring lasting benefit that we'll get to enjoy and be part of. It is good and right. Look at verse 22. My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor without success or bear children destined for disaster, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord along with their descendants. People will not be destined for disaster. Now, I don't think, again, it's saying there'll be children born in the new creation. It's painting a picture of saying that, you know how, I mean, this doesn't happen with our kids, but children in the Bible, you kind of see that there's a good leader, a good king who has dropkick kids. And the kids do dumb stuff and lead Israel away. And you're like, oh, why are they doing that? You see it in some businesses. You know, the father starts the business, hands it over to the son. The son ruins it. And you're like, ah, oh, what is this? What is this? He's saying, that won't happen. People won't do dumb stuff. We won't seek satisfaction our way, but God, the Lord, will bless us. He'll provide us with satisfaction. Every thirst quenched, every brokenness mended, every desire good and given by God. Even creation itself will be fixed. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the cattle. Picture of creation not at war. Now, this is not saying we need to put all carnivores in some sort of therapy program. We should work out in the world now. Look, we want to make it more like the, the new creation. So like, all right, lion, don't, don't eat meat. We're just going to feed you, I don't know, tofu. And, like, and we try and have a tofu kind of bend. Uh, it's not saying that. But again, it's picture language. He's painting the future. The lamb will not fear the lion or the wolf. The lion and, and, the, and the wolf won't look at the lamb as lunch anymore. There's no more fear, no more brokenness of the world around us. It will be mended. It will be a safe place. 
Because at the moment, the world isn't safe. We fear. I mean, just raise your hand for a moment. Who here locked their house this morning? Show of hands. All right, now those that didn't put up their hands are worried, okay? And now you're going, but did I lock my house? I think I locked my house. I think it'll be okay. You see, we live in a world that is just broken. But what is on view is a world that is not like that. A world that is right, that is as it should be with no fear and no evil, but things put back together. It sounds amazing with every thirst quenched and joy and delight and relationships. Oh, how I long for that day. All that sounds amazing, but it would be tragic if all we set our eyes on in this picture was the goodness of the things we get. For there's something else we need to see that's even greater than all we've seen so far at the center of this picture. It's the goodness of the God who gives it and relationship with Him. Look at verse 24, 65, 24. Even before the people call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. Imagine being face to face with the true and living God and Him being there and hearing and speaking face to face, person to person with Him. Now, we as, as, as people living post Jesus' death and resurrection get a, get a hint of that as we have the Spirit dwelling in us and as He uh, comforts us and challenges us with the Word of God and we hear God's Word to us and we can speak to Him because of Jesus. We get a taste of it. We don't get it in its fullness. Like that moment when a child goes to their dad, oh, I hurt my, and the dad says, knee, I know, and I love you. You don't get that, that sense of, of, of closeness and intimacy that, that we will get with God then. Isaiah explains it like a mother who nurses an infant, giving them all they need, joyfully sharing in life, delighting in each of us like a parent delights in their newborn child. Have a listen. 66 verse 12. For this is what the Lord says, I will make peace flow to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flood. You will nurse and be carried on her hip and bounced on her lap. As a mother comforts her son, so I will comfort you and you'll be comforted in Jerusalem. You will see and you'll rejoice. You will flourish like grass. Then the Lord's power will be revealed to his servants. Like sitting on the lap of our heavenly dad for eternity with Him with us, full security, knowing He is with us and that nothing can harm us and that will last forever, knowing our God and being with Him and one another in that perfect state forever. Oh, how great this picture. Who cares about the Powerball 34 million? Whatever. Apparently, about 70% of people that kind of win lotto are worse off four years later than they were when they started, when they won. What is on view here is far better. It is the future of the universe. And it's on offer to you and to me. The satisfaction we desire, the, the, the enough that we're built for. Isaiah explained it and painted it to these people 700 years before Jesus. It's written 2,700 years before us and given to us so we might fix our eyes not on the transience of the here and now, but on the enormity of the eternity to come. So we might look at the cake and not get caught up with the cake mixture. That's what it's about. But that's not all our eyes are drawn to as we come to the end of Isaiah's vision. In 66.14, 
God says through Isaiah, you will see, you will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. Then the Lord's power will be revealed to his servants, but he will show his wrath against his enemies. As we approach the end of the world, we see that it's not all roses for everyone. There's a a terrifying reality we each need to see that Isaiah paints for us that's just as important as the goodness of what is to come is the terror of what is rightfully ours if we don't come back to God. It makes sense that, that, that God will punish his enemies. He says justice will come and he will deliver justice. And it makes sense that that a just God cannot let any injustice go by unpunished. He can't let wrong remain if he is to right the wrongs. And so justice will be delivered. Those that reject God, those who think they know better than him, those like you and me deserve to be punished. There's a very clear division in these last two chapters of Isaiah, a division that will be there at the end of this age. We saw it at 65, come 65 verse 2. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the path that is not good, following their own thoughts. Listen to the way that these people um, make God react. These people continually anger me face to face and he lists all the ways they do it by disobeying him. Verse 5, these practices are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day long. Look, it's written in front of me. I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will repay them fully. Friends, this is a terrifying picture. The last two verses of the whole book of Isaiah, last verse of the whole book of Isaiah says this, Isaiah 66, 24. Speaking of those who came back to God and the reality of what they saw around them for those who did not. As those who've come back to God leave... They will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. For their worm will never die. Their fire will never go out. And they will be a horror to all mankind. These are some of the most terrifying words ever written, aren't they? The final coming of God's king and his kingdom when he brings in that final age also must mean the final coming of his judgment. The Bible insists there is a a proper time and place for justice to be delivered. That God will punish those who've turned our backs on Him with what we deserve. Separation from God's goodness. Separation from God and, and life forever without God. The Bible calls it hell. The New Testament calls it hell. And it's laid out for us here. Now, if you're here today and you're thinking, man, this sounds pretty full on. Firstly, you should be thinking that because it is. Like, it's incredibly full on. I once had someone, um, heard someone answer this question. Someone asked, oh, Do you think that the hell of the Bible is literal? There's really a lake of burning sulfur and fire. And this preacher said, Oh, no, no. I don't think there'll be a lake of burning sulfur and fire. It'll be much worse. It's just a picture that helps us to get how bad this separation from God's goodness is. What we deserve. Now, this is not here as some scare tactic to get people to join Christianity. You know, turn or burn, that's it. But it's the loving and true picture of the reality of the justice of God. 
That's what we all should have coming. You could censor it out of the Bible to make the Bible more palatable. I could censor it out of these last two chapters and make it all roses and be like, just come in, it'll be great. But can you see how that would not be loving to you or to the world around us to say, you know what, there's no such thing as judgment? Because if there is, we need to be ready for the reality of what we deserve. We need to reflect on how enormous this judgment is and what that means for the way we've acted. If, if that's the right and just punishment, what I have done is pretty crazy. The final verse of Isaiah is that reminder of what happens to those who do not turn to God. As they leave, they will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. For the worm will never die, the fire will never go out, there will be a horror to all mankind. Those who turn their back on their maker, who rebel against their ruler, deserve their just punishment. It's an awful picture. Because what we've done is equally awful. It might not feel it now, but to reject the one who gives and sustains life, to throw it back in his face, is a billion times worse than spitting in the face of the queen. Can you imagine that? Walking up to the queen and in her face. Yeah. Yet when we reject the true and living God, have we not done that to him? You have no right over my life. I'm going to choose what's right. I'm going to choose what's enough. I'm going to choose how I live. Who do we think we are? God in his justice on that final day will say, okay, enough. You can have what you ask for. Life without me, which is death judgment and hell the only reason God's judgment hasn't already come on each and every one of us sitting here in this room is because of God's goodness God is holding back his judgment giving time for people to come to him that's what Peter understood one of Jesus closest followers in 2 Peter 3 he says this the Lord does not delay in his promise of returning as some understand delay but is patient with you not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. See, God is waiting for us to come to Him, to come back to Him and experience the answer to this problem. So we might experience life with Him like a child on the lap of their parent. So what is the answer? How is it that we, those who've turned our back on God's good order, can have any hope? What we're seeing throughout this end section of Isaiah is it's got nothing to do with our ethnicity. It's not by being a Jew or Jewish, nor does it have anything to do with being religious or doing good works or offering to God a life that says, look, I'm good enough for you. We can't be good enough for you. As far back as Isaiah 45, God has been sounding out the call to his people. Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Come back and I'll provide the solution. Come to me. Do not stand on your own. Following the, the foretelling of the death and resurrection of the servant of the Lord that we saw in Isaiah 55, we read these words. Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the water. And you without silver, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. It's a picture of God saying, come to me and I'll give it to you with, with no cost. Come back 
to me. The door of the kingdom of God has been thrown open to all, no matter how broken, no matter how depraved we are, no matter what our ethnicity is or our nationality. We're all invited to come and drink the blessings of the coming kingdom of God. And that's because of the work of the servant of the Lord. We heard it a couple of weeks ago from Ming in Isaiah 53. 53 verse 4. Yet he himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. Crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. 700 years before Jesus walked a step on the earth, Isaiah was pointing forward to what God showed him that Jesus would come and die in our place. He would provide a way for us to come to God and for our our sins to be justly dealt with in Jesus. For Jesus to take the penalty for what we deserve, pierced for our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquity, so that the peace he deserved could be on us. It's It's the great exchange. And Isaiah was pointing it out then, and we now have that picture oh so ever more clear, don't we? History points out the reality Jesus did die. He did walk the face of this earth. History points to the fact that something happened. He rose again and people followed him as the true and living God. And here we are at the ends of the earth now from all nationalities and backgrounds because of Jesus' death in our place, trusting in Jesus' death in our place, being able to call God our Father, knowing that our sins are forgiven. But the sad fact is many, so many, refuse to listen and go back to God. We refuse to seek God, to return to Him, to come to His Son. As you look back over this book of Isaiah, as we hear the warnings and the great blessings that are on offer, don't be the person that refuses to come back to God. Not today, not tomorrow, not in 10 years' time. Don't be so stubborn that you focus your eyes on what you see and experience today, thinking this is it, forgetting the cost Jesus paid for you and the great future he is offering you. If you would just come back to the God whose arms are wide open, who says, trust me as your father, trust that your sins have been dealt with in Jesus. Put your life in his hands. If you're here on the edge today and you've recognized that your life is just one big race for satisfaction and you're losing, then come to the one who was struck down by God on your behalf. Come to Jesus today. Don't be like, oh, maybe come and seek him. Ask him right now, Lord, please forgive me. Forgive me for turning my back on you. Thank you that Jesus died in my place. Help me to See who he is and trust him as the promised king he is. And then seek to live your life in response to him and look forward to the future that is certain. That certain hope. Experience the joy of knowing the satisfaction you desire is coming. Face to face with God. No more running, no more trying, knowing it will be yours. And in part, knowing that now as his spirit works within us, there is nothing greater. It's nothing greater. And if that assurance is yours, if you put your trust in Jesus, well, it comes with an amazing privilege. An amazing privilege. Point number four. It's the privilege 
of being homesick. I don't know if you've ever thought of being homesick as a privilege, but it is. It's why we're told about this future. It's why it's laid out in front of us in Isaiah and throughout all the New Testament about what is coming so that we might long for it. We might live for what will last forever. And as we feel the pain and the weariness of this world and we're like, oh, I don't feel satisfied. We're meant to go, that's because you're not. It's because satisfaction is to come when Jesus comes back and then to turn us to say thank you for the security of what is to come and the hope that we have because Jesus died and rose again. So I will trust you. Oh, the pain hurts. The weariness comes. And it is hard. And I'm not minimizing that in any way. I'm just showing you what Isaiah is showing us. That heaven, this new creation, is our home. This renewed earth that God is taking us to, that is where our eyes are be fixed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 this, Therefore we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we don't focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. Friends, what a hope we have, what a privilege we have to feel homesick, to feel that desire that God has put in us for more. And it comes with a second privilege. Isaiah 66, verse 18, we hear the plans and purposes of God. Knowing their works and thoughts, I have come to gather all nations and languages. This is what God is doing. They will come and see my glory. I'll establish a sign among them and I'll send survivors from them to the nations, to Tarshish, to Put, to Lud, who are archers, to Tubal, to Javan, and to the coasts of the islands far away. Basically, Isaiah's whole known world, he is saying that God is saying, I will send you to the world to bring in those who are truly my people. And they're not just going to be from the nation of the Israelites. They'll be every tribe, language, and people to gather all nations and languages, and they will see the glory of God. All who have not heard about me or seen my glory, and they'll proclaim my glory among the nations. Isaiah ends by saying, God's plan is to speak to the nations about his glory, about what is to come. So the world around us will go, man, God, you're good. So as people enjoy God's good gifts and his good creation, he looks good. And that's part of our purpose right now as people who trust in this coming kingdom, who trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's to build God's church. It's to see people know the certainty of the new creation so they might experience that instead of hell. So they might experience forgiveness instead of justice. To see people know the certainty of the new creation so God looks good good. That is why we exist. That is what Isaiah paints. It's what God paints through Isaiah to these people and to us. You exist and I exist to glorify God, to give him what he deserves. And when God is glorified, two things. So when um, God is glorified when two things happen. 
One, when his judgments are delivered and justice reigns. And two, when the nations are delivered to him. Both God is glorified in. Don't think it's just everyone coming in that brings him glory. No, as he exercises his judgment, he is glorified. But he longs that we come back to him. Jesus died that we might come back to him. So as we sit at the end of the book of Isaiah, reflecting on our life and what we live for, let me ask you this today. If this picture that Isaiah laid out for us of the new creation didn't exist, if you had no concept of of, of heaven or or no concept of the new heaven and new earth, no concept of hell, right? What would be different about the way that you live today? If you had no concept of the new creation, what would be different about the way you live each day of your life? Friends, if the answer is nothing, if it wouldn't change your everyday life, knowing that there is a new creation to come, knowing that heaven and hell are real. Then you just pointed out that you're living for the here and now. You're playing in the mud. You're seeking a satisfaction you'll never find. You're eating cake mix and you'll never experience the cake. Your life is destined for futility, for the place of the worm will never die and the fire will never go out. But if you have seen the future that Jesus offered, is today or previously you've, you've recognized this picture, you've grasped a glimpse of what will be ours when Jesus returns, then that has to mean we'll live differently now, doesn't it? We'll live differently when suffering comes, knowing that this is not all there is. Though it hurts, there is, there is something better coming. We'll live differently when blessing comes and not being like, yes, I've arrived, I'm living up the good life. We'll go, no, no, this blessing is but a blimp compared to what is to come. I want to store my treasure in heaven. I want to invest in the growth of the kingdom. I want to invest in my relationship with the God I'll spend eternity with and with his people. That is how you respond to the blessings of God. So let me ask, what do you say no to today because of the inheritance you have in the future? What do you say no to today because of the inheritance you have in the future? What opportunities do you say no to because your mind is fixed on what is to come? What investments, what relationships, what pleasures, what leisure, what hopes, what dreams do you say, I don't need to be fulfilled now. I don't need to eat the cake mix because I know I'm getting the cake. And what do you say yes to now? Because we have an inheritance in the future. What level of generosity will you have now? What level of sacrifice will you be willing to go through? Where will you invest your time and use your prayers and and see the glory of God spread and the nations be gathered? What will you say yes to? Because you don't live for today. You live for the day that Jesus returns and all things are put right. Friends, your picture of the end dramatically changes how you live in the present. In his vision of the future, the Apostle John saw what Isaiah only pointed to. Have a look with me, Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. John looked forward and saw this picture of what was to come, and then listen. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, 
God's dwelling is with humanity. He will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Friends, if you trust in Jesus, that is your future. That is what we get to enjoy forever. That is what is to come. That and only that will be enough to satisfy you and me. That is what we are built for. And so as we hear this word even more clearly because of knowing Jesus' death and resurrection in our place, we can stand and say, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for me, Lord. Fix my eyes on Jesus and his kingdom to come. That is how Isaiah wants us to end. Let's pray. Father God, we want to admit today (laughs) that so often we are focused on the here and now and forget what is to come. We forget the brokenness of what we're like and that we deserve death and judgment and punishment from you and We forget how good a future you have for us. We ask that today by your spirit and through your word, you might place this picture of the future that is to come so front and center and clear in our lives that we live for you. We pray that you'd help us to trust your son, to trust his death in our place, and that that might propel us to live for you. Show us what we need to say no to in this world because we're living for what is to come. And show us what we need to say yes to because our hopes and dreams are tied to you. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.